historically in settlements where the surrounding environment offered opportunity for subsistence living, people had to be coerced into joining civilization. Scott describes the brutal subjugation as anything but a benign. Voluntary journey towards civilization, unquote. In fact, large portions of these early civilizations were not participants. They were property, quote, taken en masse as prizes of war and driven back to the core of purchased retail, as it were, from slaving expeditions selling the state what it most needed, unquote. What these early states most needed, quote-unquote, was cheap human labor to keep the wheels of civilization turning, workers to plant and harvest crops, armies to conquer and hold new land, slaves to dig canals and cut roads. This insatiable hunger for human labor also helps explain why most major religions so insistently and violently oppose non-reproductive sexual behavior. A major source of human suffering in civilized societies. Despite these prohibitions, non-reproductive sex can practically be considered a defining human characteristic. We are one of the very few species that enthusiastically engage in sex in myriad of ways that can't be possibly led to pregnancy. But many religions impose draconian punishments for masturbation, sodomy, same-sex dalliances, or even enjoying sex with one's marital partner a little too much or too often. Seen as a way of compelling rapid population growth in order to fuel the growth of civilized populations, this otherwise bizarre prohibition of non-reproductive sex begins to make sense. Humans are in effect being bred as a source of cheap, disposable labor like horses, oxen, or camels. Forcing the reluctant to join expanding empires wasn't restricted to biblical or classical times. The invention of capitalism, economic historian Michael Perelman explains how the economic noose was tightened around the necks of anyone who tried to opt out of civilizational enterprise in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, rather than contending that market forces should determine the fate of these small-scale producers, classical political economy called for state interventions of one sort or another to hobble these people's ability to produce for their own needs." Unquote. It wasn't enough merely to be civilized yourself. Everyone else had to be civilized too. Perelman quotes a botanist, Thomas Pennant, who explored the Scottish Highlands in the 1970s. His descriptions of the Highlanders are reminiscent of what we've heard many times about native people living beyond the fence. Quote, the men are thin but strong, idle and lazy, except when employed in the chase or anything that looks for amusement, and are content with their hard fare, and will not exert themselves farther than they deem necessaries. 
unquote. Pennant's description resembles Adam Smith's opinion concerning the uncivilized, quote, the life of a savage, when we take a distant view of it, seems to be a life of either profound indolence or of great and astonishing adventures. This state of affairs could not be permitted. Men had to be made poor enough that they'd be forced to join the desperate throngs in the Mayans' armies and factories. A London police magistrate named Patrick Colquhoun articulated the widespread view that poverty was integral to the health of civilization. Quote, poverty is a most necessary and indispensable ingredient in society, without which nations and communities could not exist in a state of civilization. It is a lot of man. It is a source of wealth, since without poverty, there could be no labor. There could be no riches, no refinement, no comfort, and no benefit to those who may be possessed of wealth. The systematic coercion of those who tried to opt out cut through traditional life ways like scissors, explains Perelman. The first blade served to undermine the ability of people to provide for themselves. The other blade was a system of stern measures required to keep people from finding alternative survival strategies outside the system of wage labor. One of the so-called Tudor poor laws enacted in the late 1500s outlawed begging in England. Anyone over the age of four when employed in four teen caught begging would be flogged and branded with a red hot iron on the left ear. Anyone caught a third time will be executed. These examples are not exceptional. Francis Hutcheson, one of the Adam Smith's most important mentors, was one of the leading moral philosophers of his day, mid-1700s. Hutcheson counseled, quote, If a people have not acquired a habit of industry, the cheapness of all the necessities of life encourages sloth. The best remedy is to raise the demand for all necessaries. Sloth should be punished by temporary servitude at least. And make no mistake, people are still being dragged into the market economy. Multinational corporations routinely expropriate land in poor countries or quote-unquote buy it from corrupt politicians, force the local populations off the land so they cannot grow or hunt their own food, and offer the quote-unquote luckiest among them jobs, cutting down the forest, mining minerals, or harvesting fruit in exchange for slave wages often paid in company currency that can only be used to buy unhealthful, industrially produced foods at inflated prices at a company-owned store. These victims of market incursion are then often celebrated as having been saved from abject poverty. With their gardens, animals, fishing, and hunting, they had been living on less than a dollar per day. Now as slave laborers, they're participating in the economy. This, we're told, is progress. In 2014, the Med Coca-Cola bottling plant near Varanasi, India, was shut down by the government after years of protest by local residents. People all over India had been denouncing the company's policy of extracting so much water from aquifers that local wells ran dry. 
On the other side of the world, in 1999, a division of Bechtel, the secretive American defense contractor with top-level ties to the Reagan and Bush administrations, bought the municipal water system of Cochabamba, Bolivia, from the federal government. Soon, representatives of the company arrived to install meters on wells, many of which had originally been dug and maintained by village cooperatives. The local people saw their water bills surge 50% on average, often for water from wells they themselves had dug. They were also expected to pay for the installation of the new water meters and warned that collecting rainwater was now illegal. From foragers been being forced off land they lived on for centuries because they cannot produce deeds of ownership, to 18th century Scottish Highlanders who preferred to tend their sheep, to today's college graduates saddled with tens of thousands of dollars in debt before they've landed their first job. Non-participation in the market economy has consistently and effectively been eliminated as a viable option. To those who suggest we should, quote, love it or leave it, unquote, I'd suggest that neither option is or has ever been a realistic possibility. It's as if people are being forced into casinos at gunpoint where they lose everything generation after generation, and then they, they're told they've got a gambling problem. Before turning to how misguided assumptions about foragers and the civilized contaminate contemporary perspectives on the natural world and human nature, let's take a closer look at Malthus and Hobbes, arguably two of the most important thinkers of the past. 500 years.